0: At the close of his services, he would frequently round up the audience with an appeal on this wise, now, who wants to get nearer to God? Who would like a special blessing? Let everybody who is hungry for God stand on his feet. Everybody who is in real earnest, move forward. If you move forward only a foot, it will show that you mean business. If you will come right up to the front, we will pray with you and God will meet you. The people would flock to the front he would exhort them who will lift up his hands in faith and ask God for something. Now thank God for it. Now again, ask God for something. Now thank God. The exercise of faith brought the answer to hundreds, and many were baptized in the Spirit as they lifted up their hands and voices to God. At these after-meetings he adopted a definiteness and a conciseness that got folk further and got more for them in a minute and some ministers would have obtained in a millennium. He taught them that a definite faith brought a definite experience, and a definite utterance. He instructed his hearers how to leap over obstacles, and intermediate things, and get quickly, and effectually to their goal, and obtain their object. His instructions to the seekers were usually their terse: ask, for what you want, believe, receive from God, and thank God for it. If you ask God seven times for the same thing, six times are an unbelief, was one of his sayings. You can feel just how you feel any time you like to feel. Feelings are liars. Isaac felt Jacob, but he was cheated just the same. Faith is better than feelings, and if you have faith you will have all the feelings you can feel. When the woman with that issue of blood touched in faith the hem of his garment, she soon had plenty of feelings. She felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Although his life was a combination of incessant prayer and praise, and every word and work was an act of worship, yet he was not given to protracted periods of fasting and prayer. He practiced himself and encouraged his hearers to live a life of consistent confidence in God, so that they were ready for any occasion, and never taken unawares by any emergency. To him, Christ's words, only believe, meant only believe. Other methods of approach to God and getting things from God were of secondary importance to him. Yet he realized and sincerely appreciated the fact that his ministry was sustained largely by a host of people who would give themselves to the ministry of prayer, and in all his letters to such folk he pleaded for a continuance of their prayerful support. A preacher must not tell his audience what he thinks, but what he knows, and let them do the thinking, he would say. He certainly said a lot of folk thinking whenever he arose to speak. He was not always as clear in his use of Bible terms as some folk wished he would be. Consequently, there were occasions when he was accused of teaching doctrines which were open to question. His use of the word mortality led some Christians to affirm that he taught the theory that there is no need to die. Actually, the champions of that teaching had no stronger opponent, as some of them could testify. Quoting Romans 8, 11, he maintained that it was gloriously possible to know the surging resurrection life of Christ in the mortal body now, but none knew better than he that the outward man perisheth. He constantly talked about the power of faith in God. He would say, Fear looks, faith jumps. Faith never fails to obtain its object. If I leave you, as I found you, I am not God's channel. I am not here to entertain you, but to get you to the place, where you can laugh at the impossible, to believe and to see the goodness of the Lord, in the land of the living. Men of faith always have a good report. I am satisfied with the dissatisfaction that never rests until it is satisfied and satisfied again. We have to get rid of our small measure because God's measure is so much greater than ours a measure that cannot be measured. Here are a few of his challenging assertions. Far too many of us dwell on the lowlands of salvation. Can't you hear voices calling you to the uplands of divine grace? Mountain climbing is thrilling. Let us be off. Hebron as heights rise before us shall we explore our unclaimed inheritance in the heavenlies. Be filled with the Spirit, that is, be soaked with the Spirit, so soaked that every thread in the fabric of your life will have received the requisite hue of the Spirit. Then when you are misused and squeezed to the wall, all that will lose out of you will be the Jesus nature. The Knights of Pentecost all they seek is a place of service, and they care little about its being a place of honor, they aspire after travail rather than applause, if they can but be popular with the supreme potentate of their society, they ask nothing more. We should be far more concerned about a rich and noble character than we are about a big reputation. Popularity can be bought almost any day for a song and sold for a sparrow, but a noble character is the product of years of divine training and discipline. It is not poverty from which Christians suffer, but it is the disease called stinginess and selfishness, and hence, while they have enough. And to spare for themselves, their children, and their pleasures, they lack the heart to give in order, to promote God's glory, and the good of their fellow men. Far too many people spend their entire lifetime making a living. Making a living is the small, time-serving, dwarfed, and paralyzed man's object. Making a life is the kingly, righteous and holy man's object. The one lives in the narrow, prison-limited circle of self, and the other in a world which is bounded only one infinity and eternity have limits. Little souls delight in fault-finding big ones in appreciating. Mean folk are always minus folk, it is the great hearts, who are the plus ones. They add to life and make it richer, they call out all that is best within us by the sunshine of their appreciation. Give attention to life's inflow, outward service will dwindle, if inward energies are not renewed. Much of our spectacular organization in Pentecost is just a splendid emptiness, while some quiet and unobtrusive fellowship is just laden with the excellent glory of the Lord. We have only touched the outer circle of the great maelstrom of life in the spirit, there are hidden wonders, in the untrodden realm of the divine love, there are new trails, to be followed through the tropical luxuriance of redeeming grace. Be filled with the spirit, that is, be crammed with the spirit, so filled, that there will be no room left for anything else. What is the advantage of such a life? We can only feel what reaches the central realm of consciousness. If we keep evil out of that inner realm, we destroy its virulence. So if we have our consciousness filled with the presence of the glory of the Lord, there will be no room even for the aggressive errors of destructive criticism or for bitter disappointment. There is no person ever able to talk about the victory over temptation without he goes through it. All the victories are won in battles. You must every day make higher ground. You must deny yourself to make progress with God. You must refuse everything that is not pure and holy. God wants you pure in heart. He wants you to have an intense desire after holiness. It is when we believe that something happens. The word of God ever profits unless it is mixed with faith in them that hear it. God wants you so full of the Spirit that your whole life is praise. The greatest plan that Christ showed forth was the ministry of service. When we come to a place where we serve for pure love's sake, we shall find the hand of the Divine Master upon us, and we shall never fail. You are bound forever by loyalty to God, to see, that no schism shall come into the body of the church. Two things will get you to leap out of yourselves into the great promises of God today. One is purity, and the other is faith, which is kindled more, and more by purity. God has no room for the man that looks back, thinks back, or acts back. The word of God has not to be prayed about, the word of God is to be received and obeyed. There is always blessing where there is harmony. One accord is the keynote to victory. See to it that nothing ever comes out of your lips that would disturb harmony, but rather live in the place where you are helping everybody, lifting everybody, and causing everybody to come into perfect harmony. Be not afraid to ask, for God is on the throne ready to answer. You can always be down in the dumps when you live by your feelings. Remember that God has raised us up in Christ far above all things. He says, all things are yours. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. One Sunday he was in a strange town, and in his search for a place of worship he found himself in a friend's meeting-house. He sat quietly just like other people for a time, and then his experience became like that of the psalmist who said, While I was musing the fire burned, then spake I with my tongue. His soul was ablaze, for he had just left his Salvation Army in and liquid fire flowed from his lips. At the close of the service the leaders gathered around him exclaiming, How quickly you are moved by the Spirit! What is your secret? do please tell us they were somewhat astounded at his blunt reply well you see it is like this if the spirit does not move me i move the spirit that was doubtless a crude way for him to express himself but we have often heard him say as i start out in the natural in faith the spirit of god always meets me and anoints me so that although i start in the natural i continue in the spirit it could be said of smith wigglesworth that he was unique original and illimitable. He was too sincere to be a mimic and too transparent to be imitated. There were those who sought to borrow his innovations, but they found that these imitations were as incongruous to them as Saul's armor was to David, as useless as Elisha's rod was to Gehazi, and as revealing as was the terrible experience of the seven sons of Siva, who sought to cast out demons in the name of the Christ whom Paul preached. Chapter 12 freedom from covetousness keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have is the revised version of hebrews 13:5. our great heart believed and obeyed the scripture as he sought to believe and obey every other word in the scriptures of truth at one time he was the guest of a reputed millionaire in london and together they took an early morning walk in high park wigglesworth remarked brother i have not a care in the world i am as happy as the birds and just as free Yet at that very moment he had in his pocket letters from home, the contents of which would have filled most men's hearts with fear and anxiety, and bowed them down with deep concern. What do you say? What do you say? Will you repeat that? The millionaire asked. He did, and his friend remarked, I would give all that I possess to be able to say that. If he had given a single hint to that man concerning his great financial needs, he could have had all the money he required. This wealthy man would have esteemed it a privilege to meet all the urgent needs mentioned in those letters. But the approval of God and personal freedom were, in Wigglesworth's opinion, of much greater value, than being in financial bondage to any man. Thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blinded the wise, and perverted the word of the righteous, is a scripture he knew by heart. To the end he kept financially clean, and could truthfully say, I have coveted no man silver or gold. He could lock his lips, seal his heart, and smile through in public, and yet be carrying loads, that would break a giantess back. In the presence of God he would unload everything, and storm heaven, until the assurance came, and all his needs were met. When any church was seeking to have him for a campaign, one of the terms on which he insisted was that there should be one or more missionary collections. He would not ask anything for himself, but he could ask largely for those who were preaching the gospel, in the regions beyond. He said to us one time, I would like to have my picture taken at the time I am writing a missionary check. That is the time when I really look happy. During one of his campaigns, a check for a considerable sum was put into his hands. He made inquiries about the donor. He was assured that the party who had given this money was wealthy and the gift carried no conditions. He sent the money to a certain missionary association for their use. Later he learned that there were circumstances in the life of the donor, that he considered unsatisfactory, and he returned the whole sum in installments as his income allowed. He hated extravagance and waste. In the years of war, when income was low, expenses high, and the prices of commodities soared, it was always considered prudent to keep from him the price of housekeeping. If he learned that the price of food on the table was, in his estimation, excessive, he would not touch it, and invariably it had to be removed from his sight. He could be stingy with himself but he never was with others, especially where the work of God was concerned. He was never niggardly in the use of his money, but money had to be his servant, and not his master. He would say, the wise man never spends more than 19 of his 20 shillings, but the fool spends 20, and thus becomes beggared. At the close of the last meeting of one of his big campaigns, one for which he had received a very liberal remuneration, he was introduced to two missionaries from China, They had need of a considerable sum to get them to their destination. Learning this, he endorsed the check he had received, the salary for a month's hard work, and handed it to the two men. He did this sort of thing on more than one occasion. For a number of years he gave all the income from his book Ever-Increasing Faith to help Christian work and workers in many lands. His mail brought him letters of appeal from all over the world, and if it were in his power to help he never failed to do so there were, however, those who abused his generosity. On one occasion, when he was on his way to Australia and New Zealand, he passed through the United States and arrangements were made for American campaigns when he returned. While in New Zealand God wonderfully poured out his spirit and the whole country was stirred. The revival was at its height when the time for his return to fulfill the promised engagements drew near. He received letters from the people concerned, but he replied that it would be difficult to leave New Zealand at that time. Letters and cables passed between the two countries, but the people to whom he had given the promise were unyielding in their demand that he come to America, at the time agreed. Despite cables expressing the wish of thousands of New Zealanders, Wigglesworth was compelled to make the three weeks' journey. The church that had asked him for a campaign had promised to pay his return fare and give him a liberal love offering in return for a month's campaign. They asked permission to print and sell his addresses which were taken down stenographically. Throughout the meetings they made intense appeals, and took up special offerings for a new Bible school they were building. During this time the officers of the church approached him, and appealed to him to release them from the promise to pay his return fare. He told them that he was in need of the money, and that he had left revival, and financial prosperity in New Zealand, because they had compelled him. Finally he yielded to their pressure, and absolved them from that obligation. The campaign closed, and the people testified to great blessings, but the officers of the church failed to fulfill their promises. He left that city a poorer but a much wiser man. For a short while, to avoid a recurrence of like unfair dealing, he sought a clear financial understanding with the assemblies who invited him, but, as a rule he found there was no necessity for this. At one time the pastor of a very large church said to him, Brother, you have been here three months, and your ministry has put this work on a new and solid footing. You cannot leave us our people have demanded that we retain you at any price, and the board of this church has asked me to request you to name your figure. You can have anything you want, if you will only stay with us. The speaker went on to suggest an astronomical amount, if he would only continue his ministry in that church, but Wigglesworth was adamant, as he replied, I have done what God wanted me to do in this place, and now not all the money in the world would be enough to keep me gather your church board together, and I will pray with you and them, and then say good A pleading, weeping group of men met him, and urged him to reconsider his verdict, but he had made up his mind. He prayed with the man for them, and left them saying, I have a peace no money can buy. I have heaven's smile, and that is worth millions of dollars. I have the divine approval that I would not sacrifice for all the gold in the world. A minute under the unction of God is worth more than worlds. The good will of God on my head and heart is priceless treasure. Should I sacrifice these for earth's gold? Never. Never. Our great heart was a friend of many rich people in different parts of the world, yet he was never the slave of any. Had he been covetous, he could have been extremely wealthy, but we have often heard him quote the words of Alicia, Is it a time to receive money? Offers such as the following came to him. A millionaire brewer, who had tried the world's best specialists for his sick wife, without avail, urged him to spare neither time nor money to come at once to aid her. Parents whose children were mentally afflicted were ready to pay any price for their deliverance. Rich, dissipated, physically ruined people sought his aid. They cabled and wrote him, Come, fly over, money no object. He gave a deaf ear to all these financial offers. He would not move out of the will of God. If being pure meant being poor, he was quite willing for that. While he knew the value and the need of money, he knew, too, its snare, in planning his itineraries, and acknowledging offers for campaigns in different churches, the financial remuneration was never the deciding factor. Prospects could be elusive and promises could break down. These things he knew from bitter experience. But he had proved that by putting God first, all the resources of God were at his disposal. He always bore that scripture in mind, to do good, and to come forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. When he was visiting the city of Springfield, Missouri, in 1923, he stayed in the writer's home. At that time my wife and I were not overburdened with filthy lucre. He must have noticed that we were somewhat shabbily dressed, our income being small in those days, for he took us downtown and purchased a new suit and hat for me and a new outfit for my wife. He was just overwhelmed with joy at being able to perform this kindness to two people whom he loved, and I remember that in one of the stores, like Joseph, he sought where to weep. He went into one dark corner of the store where he hoped no clerk could see him, and there he wiped away the copious tears that were falling from his eyes. He used every opportunity to induce people to be generous in their giving to God's work. Standing before a crowded audience in a large auditorium in London during a Pentecostal convention, he announced, This is my birthday. I am 70 today. Now I know that many of you people love me, and that you would like to give me a birthday present. Some of you ladies have come to stay in this city for a few days. You possess more dresses and hats than you need, and they will last you a long time. And you men, too, can make your clothes last a bit longer. You all can save money and give it as a birthday offering to God. We will use the offering for missionary work throughout the world. The audience smilingly rose to the occasion and gave record offering. It was a timely blessing to the work of God overseas. To Wigglesworth, giving was always more blessed, than receiving, and he preached and practiced the art of laying up treasures in heaven. After his home going, a friend in Melbourne, Australia, wrote, I can never forget the first convention in Sunderland, in 1908. A collection was taken for foreign missionaries. The amount received was about 70. When the total was announced there was some hand clapping. But Wigglesworth was disappointed at so small an offering, and he arose, with tears running down his face, and said reprovingly, Pentecost, and seventy. About twenty-six years ago I was at his convention in Bradford, and the missionary collection was about one thousand two hundred. The next year he got one thousand three hundred fifty. Chapter 13 A great fight of faith in 2 Samuel 23 8-12 We read short summaries of the exploits of three of David's mighty men of valor. Adino lifted up his spear against eight hundred foes, whom he slew at one time. Eleazar defied the Philistines, he smote them until his hand was weary, and his hand clave unto his sword. This resulted in a great victory, and much spoil for Israel. Shammah stood in the midst of a ground full of lentils, and defended it. As a result of his gallant stand, the attacking Philistines were slain, and the Lord wrought a great victory. It was on a similar line to that of these three heroes, that our great heart fought a good fight of faith to the almost universal question, how can we have great faith? He would reply, great faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. Great triumphs can only come out of great trials. It is significant that the highest military decorations in all countries are symbolized by a cross that sign of greatest conflict and greatest victory. There are many who contest the truth that Christ heals the sick today, but our great heart-based his preaching and practicing on the truth that Christ is still the same, and that the Lord who changes not still says to every sick and needy one, I am the Lord that healeth thee. One of his great friends, Thomas myers was responsible for the statement, He that has an experience is not at the mercy of a man who merely has an argument. Our great heart had a ruck, like background in his own personal experience of the Lord as healing, and he saw healing flow out from the Lord to thousands to whom he ministered. The Lord let him go through many destings and trials in his experience, but he would frequently testify, God has repeatedly sent his steamroller over me and flattened me out, but he has never left me on the ground. Earlier in this book we have told how God healed him of appendicitis when a zealous young man battled through in prayer and obtained deliverance and healing for the dying man. We have also told of his deliverance from a long and serious condition of hemorrhoids, or what is frequently termed bleeding piles. The scripture that the Lord gave him on this occasion was, From the days of John the Baptist, until now the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. He interpreted this, as a call to the exercise of violent or forceful faith on his part in order to overcome this trial in his body. At that time he literally stormed the throne of grace, and took the kingdom by force. In later days, his prayer for the demon oppressed was characterized by holy violence, and he sought to fulfill the fast of Isaiah 58, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free. His attitude was never that of a child stroking a kitten, but rather of one who tore the prey out of the mouth of the dragon. In the latter part of his life he had three tremendous physical tests. The first of these commenced about 15 years before his home going, and it was a record of miraculous faith and fortitude on his part. He went to a doctor whom he knew, who said to him, Mr. Wigglesworth, I have received the X-ray plates which show your condition, and the report is a very serious one. They reveal kidney stones in an advanced stage. If you will take my advice, you will submit to an operation at the earliest possible opportunity. It is the only thing that can save you from a prolonged and painful illness, and eventually these stones will kill you. Let me telephone to the hospital and get a bed for you immediately. Looking up into the eager face of the doctor, he said, Doctor, the God who made this body is the one who can cure it. No knife shall ever cut it so long as I live. What about these stones? asked the doctor. God will deal with them, was the answer. The doctor said, Well, if ever he does, I shall be interested to know about it. You shall, answered Mr. Wigglesworth, as he left the office. The pains increased and night and day, there was local irritation. A vessel was placed for his use in a convenient place in his home. After an unusually trying day, his daughter went to empty this vessel, and noticed a thick gray sediment at the bottom. In it was a substance like the shell of a nut, rough-edged and brittle. To pass such a thing in kidney action must have caused excruciating pain. When he was shown this he remarked, this is the beginning of the end. The Lord has operated. It was the beginning, but the end was a long way off. There were to be many years of agony before he passed the last stone. He showed the doctor what had come from him and the doctor had to admit that it was a miracle that he had been able to eject such a thing from the kidneys. How he endured such incessant torture with every nerve dancing with pain when he passed large quantities of blood as he struggled to eject the stones and yet continued his ministry without any intermission was an astounding thing to those who knew of his battle. One day he arose from his bed to take a journey to the Isle of Man which was quite a distance from his home, to pray for some sick people. This meant a three hours railway journey before he boarded the ocean-going boat with its trying sea passage of some hours in wintry weather. On his arrival a relative, who was an nurse, met him, and pleaded with him to go to bed with hot water bottles, etc., because he was so ill but he stayed on the island until he had ministered healing and deliverance to the sick ones. He struggled with moving stones on the outward and return journey, and passed so much blood that his cheeks were blanched, and he had to be wrapped in heavy rugs, to give him warmth. Later, accompanied by his son-in-law, he went to Sweden and Norway, for a protracted visit. All night long he was in, and out of bed, as he struggled to emit stones, rolling on the floor in agony. Yet he would rise, and minister to the sick twice each day. In the large Philadelphia church in Stockholm, the ministry to the sick was unusually heavy. At the close of one day the pastor, Louis Petrus, said there were about 800 folk to pray for in the afternoon, and about 500 in the night service. Miracles of healing were wrought, as he ministered to the people in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet he was more sick than the people he prayed for, and he received no relief for himself. It could truthfully be said, that he ministered in the infirmity of the flesh. In Switzerland he passed through the churches, like a flame. Revival followed his ministry. Souls were saved, bodies were healed of all kinds of diseases, the big halls were filled, and the people were blessed. Very few people knew that he was going through the biggest test of his life, he towered above it all like a rock. When in America he filled the biggest halls, ministered to record crowds, prayed for thousands of people, and yet the trial continued. Frequently his son-in-law and daughter had to leave him in bed. After they had begun the meeting, he would rise and go to the church, preach, and pray for the sick, and then return to his bed. At times, in the meeting, he would bear the agony he was suffering as long as he could, and then run off the platform, and seek a place of relief, only to return and carry on the service. James Salter testifies, living with him, sharing his bedroom, as we frequently did during those years, we marveled at the unquenched zeal in his fiery preaching, and his compassionate ministry to the sick. I do not remember his ever absenting himself from any meeting during that period, although there were times when he had to leave the preaching to others knowing him as perhaps no other man did, being together under the most intimate conditions, sharing mutual secrets, having every opportunity to weigh and assess him physically, and spiritually, one cannot find the answer to the struggle of those days and years, in the iron constitution and will of steel, both of which he possessed, for I have seen those things break down under lesser tests. He did not just bear those agonies, he made them serve the purpose of God, and gloried in, and over them. He had a glass bottle in which he kept many of the stones he had passed, and finally there were some hundreds of them. After a test of at least six years he emerged with his fire-tried faith firmer than ever, and a renewed and unshakable trust in his God. He aspired to be, like Job, someone in whom God would glory over the devil. Throughout the whole period of his trial, his confidence was expressed in the words of Job, but he knoweth the way that I take, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps, his way have I kept. And not declined. In 1937, our great heart visited South Africa. He frequently remarked that it was the most trying tour he ever made in his life. He was not well when he left England, and he boarded the ship in great pain. For the major part of the voyage, he suffered intensely with sciatica, which at times locked his legs and made walking extremely painful. Despite this drawback, his early campaigns were richly blessed of God, and the results of his soul-saving and body-healing ministry are standing today. A man who had derived great benefits from reading his book, ever-increasing faith, purchased a Rumi automobile, and undertook to drive him all the time he was in South Africa. In many ways this was a great blessing. In some other respects it had its drawbacks. His daughter was with him on this trip, and his son-in-law journeyed down from the Belgian Congo and traveled with him for a few weeks. One night, after an exceptionally heavy service, Mr. Solver was helping him to bed, when he locked the bedroom door, and revealed that he had been ruptured badly. He said it was due to getting in and out of the automobile. That may have climaxed it, but he had been jumping off some high platforms during his preaching and healing demonstrations, and for a man of 78 this practice was doubtless dangerous. But he completed his tour, his disability known only to his son-in-law and daughter. Speaking of that tour, Mr. Salker says how he worked and preached. There were meetings in large halls and he traveled thousands of miles over corrugated dirt roads, preaching and praying for the sick, both black and white, eating unusual food, perspiring in the hot sun, and yet he never spared himself. He certainly did not behave like a badly ruptured man. It was another of the secrets that God and he shared and overcame. In the autumn of 1944 he had another severe period of physical testing. At that time he was 85 years of age. As was his custom he had been sitting in the park at the end of the road near where he lived. But when he came home at midday, it was noticed that his face was twisted and that he had little use of one side of his body. He smiled, but his speech was affected. He was given some food and his loved ones put him to bed. The rest of the day he was semi-conscious. When night time came his son felt that a doctor ought to see him. The doctor, who had advised an operation on the previous occasion, examined him. But he pleaded with the doctor, please leave me alone. The doctor thought it was resentment, but he was really so sick that he did not know what he was saying, and he did not even recognize the doctor. The doctor diagnosed the case and told the members of the family, he has had his son stroke. Keep him in bed for a day or two. The doctor drew Mr. Sultan aside and said, he may not get over this. He can go any time. He may pass in his sleep. After a day or two in bed, he was able to get up, and the first thing he did was to go over to the doctor and apologize, explaining to him that he had not known what he was doing or saying. But he had been badly shaken and was unsteady in hands and feet. In fact, he had one or two bad falls. His loved ones cared for him all the winter, but early in the following year he had a miraculous touch in mind and body. He began to write all his own letters, and went about as usual. God quickened Romans 8:11 to him, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. His speech and letters were full of this message. He was entirely rejuvenated, and wrote the story of his healing for publication. When easier came he took his usual place as chairman of the Preston Convention, which was always one of the outstanding Easter meetings. He could scarcely wait until the first few songs were sung in the opening service before he began to give his testimony. Romans 8:11 was his text and topic all through the series of meetings, and his witness to this new life vitalized every service throughout the whole convention. Again we heard his old familiar expression, Why, I don't know that I have a body. In this state of spiritual and physical glow he continued until the day of his home going. Chapter 14 A life of joy Smith Wigglesworth often said, No man gets moat out of life, and I do. I get more out of a minute than most folks get out of a month. He reminded us of a grown-up schoolboy in his simple delights. He loved to roam the woodlands. He knew all the birds of his native land, and their songs. One day his elder son said to him, Father, we have found a young cuckoo in a titlar nest. It is just by the roadside. Immediately he desired to drive out and see it. How fascinated he was, as he watched the fledgling, in its tiny nest, open its mouth each time it heard a sound. It illustrated to him the scripture text, open by mouth wide, and I will fill it, Psalm 81, 10. He reveled in the violets, the primroses, the bluebells, and the heather of his native land. James Salter tells of spending a day with him in the country, after ascending a long grade we emerged into a wonderful stretch of moorland miles and miles of it. As far as the eye could see the ground was carpeted with a gorgeous covering of purple heather, just at its fullest and best. The sun shone brilliantly, the birds soared, and sang, all nature seemed to be reveling in the holiday mood. The air was like bomb, and Smith Wigglesworth raised his arms in his characteristic way, threw back his shoulders, and began to breathe in deeply, as he exclaimed, This is wine, this is health, this is life. An elderly man who was passing, stopped and looked at these extravagant actions, and when Mr. Wigglesworth saw him, he addressed him saying, What a wonderful place, to live in this must be. Surely, people never die here. He much enjoyed the answer of the old man, who said, with a twinkle in his eye, only once, mister, only once. Flowing water was like a soothing song to him. I would like to spend a night in that bedroom overlooking this babbling stream, he would say. He was a boy again, as he sat on the bank of a lovely stream, watching a country boy catching trout, and lifting them out of the water for him to see. He soared, and sang with the larks and the linnets, and he romped with the young rabbits. His holidays were holy days. He relaxed, but he never retired from the work he loved so well the work of bringing in souls to Christ. While they were both young, he and his wife went on a cycling tour in Scotland. In one of the towns through which they passed, an open-air gospel service was in progress. An open-air meeting was always a joy to Mrs. Wigglesworth, so she entered the ring and spoke for a short time. The provost of the town heard her, and learning that she was an evangelist, he immediately arranged a week as special meetings for her, The nights were spent in a blessed series of soul-saving services. In the daytime Smith Wigglesworth took the opportunity to climb one of Scotland's highest mountains, and on the mountainside he was able to lead three men to the Lord before he returned home. He always had a special liking for North Wales. Even when he was well advanced in years, it was a joy to walk to the summit of Mount Snowdon, and down again which is quite a feat for younger folk. How he delighted to see the sun rise from such an elevation. On one occasion he and his daughter arranged to have a cycling holiday in North Wales. It was in the days of the Welsh Revival in 1905. One day, following the crowd which was too big for any building, they entered a large field. There was no visible leader in the meeting but God's spirit was present. The singing of hymns and choruses mingled with the prayers, everybody seemed lost in the thought of expressing their heart's emotion, in some suitable way. There was no start and no stop, and the meetings appeared to continue indefinitely. Smith Wigglesworth enjoyed the holy atmosphere of the meeting, but after a while he said to his daughter, ''Let us go for a bite of food. We will follow this path, it will lead us somewhere.'' The pathway led to a farmyard, where a woman was very busy. ''We have some food here with us, could you make us something to drink?'' asked Mr. Wigglesworth. ''Why, of course,'' she replied. ''But you must excuse my appearance.'' She explained, we are only doing what is absolutely necessary these days, as we are spending all the time we can at the revival. Of course, we have to milk and feed the cows, and attend to the hens. We are not bothering much about food. She began to get some tea for them to drink. Are you saved? Mr. Wigglesworth asked her. Well, no, not in the way that Evan Roberts says we should be. We are Methodists. Well, he replied, you can be saved saved in the only way that people can be saved, and that is through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Opening his New Testament at Romans ten nine, 9, he read to the woman, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart, that God hath raised him, from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That is how people get saved and become born again, he explained. He had the pleasure of leading that soul to the Lord Jesus. Leaving North Wales by boat for Liverpool, he and his daughter had the joy of pointing two men to their Saviour, when in California it was always his joy to visit the Yosemite Valley. Every night a huge bonfire is made, and every night at nine o'clock, exactly, a voice calls out, let the fire fall. Then from a rock about a thousand feet high, blazing timbers are thrust over the side, and the fire falls like a flaming waterfall. Said Mr. Sulker, it was at such a scene witnessed by thousands of people of the select type, that we heard him give forth one of his loudest hallelujahs. What an echo sounded through the valley, and what a shock it gave to the audience. Such a sight of falling fire stirred his Pentecostal soul to the depths, and he never forgot that scene. Another occasion that lives in our memory was when we had listened to Handel's masterpiece, the Messiah. The oratorio was climaxed with the Hallelujah Chorus, which brought the audience to its feet, and, as the choir closed its last note he lifted his voice, in an ecstatic Hallelujah, that filled the hall, and made the rafters ring. A reporter, writing up the event for the next A.S. paper, made the comment, I never heard such a voice in my life. His pleasure in persons, in places, and in pictures was unbounded. When traveling through different countries he always availed himself of the opportunity to see the principal sites. There were two things he saw that always had great spiritual inspiration for him. One was Niagara Falls, and the other the Trommelbach Falls in Switzerland. Looking at these two majestic, rushing torrents, He would plead, with the tears streaming from his eyes, like that, my God, like that in me. Out of my innermost being let there flow, like that, vast, fast rivers of living water. Usually after visiting Niagara he would go to New York City for his final American campaign, and invariably he would urge his audiences to receive a like that experience. The sight of these masterpieces of nature affected him like the minstreless art affected Elisha they set his soul aglow and his spirit ablaze in the incense of prayer and praise and I have seen him dance in a spirit of abandonment. Then his hands would rise spontaneously in worship and he would indulge in an exhibition of jubilation that was contagious. With tears streaming down his cheeks he would invariably say, brethren, let us pray. He would turn every place into a Bethel and every group of people into worshippers of the living God. His joy continued to the end, and he would say, I have no regrets, and there is nothing for which I wish to turn back. When Christmas or his birthday came around, the people would ask him what kind of present he would like, and he would reply, There is not a single thing in this world that I want. I have all I need. He completed the full circle of a Christian ministry, omitted no known item on the program, lived a blaze for God, igniting other lives, and moved under divine pressure to enter heaven like a fully laden ship entering into port. He finished his course. How jealously he guarded the faith he preached and practiced. He thought that it was better to die trusting than to live doubting. A testimony of healing in which God, doctors, operations, and medicines shared the credit always failed to find his full approval. His was the spirit of the Holy Mount, where, when three tabernacles were owned, two persons were withdrawn, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. And suddenly, when they looked round about, they saw no one save Jesus only, and themselves. He was intensely zealous that God alone should have all the glory. No mountain was big enough, and no circumstance was wide enough to allow another person, if Jesus was on it, or in it. To him, keeping the faith in its entirety, and living under the sunshine of God's approving smile, meant to have the attitude of Job, who said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, and the attitude of the three Hebrews, who said to Nebuchadnezzar, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O King. But if not, be it known unto thee, O King, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. To them, burning was preferable to bending. One of his slogans was, if you would be crowned with righteousness, keep the faith. There were two great sorrows in his life. One was the home-going of his dear wife in 1913. Mrs. Wigglesworth served the Lord until the very last moment of her life. It was as she was returning from Boland Street Mission that her heart failed her. That night Mr. Wigglesworth was going to Scotland, but news reached him at the station before he boarded the train that his wife was very sick. He rushed home. We gather from what he has told us that her spirit had already departed to be with the Lord, but when he rebuked death her spirit came back for just a short while. But then the Lord spoke to his heart, and told him, This is the time that I want to take her home to myself. And so with a breaking heart he released the one he had loved for so many years, to go to be with Christ. But it seemed to us that from that moment his ministry took on a new sweetness, and a new power. In the year 1915, his youngest son George went to be with the Lord. This was a great wound to his loving heart, but from the letters, that followed, after his boy as home going, it seemed, as though the father again entered into a deeper consecration, and a new and larger, and yet more sympathetic ministry for his lord and master. Chapter 15 The corn In the Airwell. And how is she? How often our great heart had asked such a question. These words were typical of his loving heart, revealing itself in oneness with human frailties, and in compassionate sympathy with those who suffered pain. But this was the last time he asked it, and these were the last words Smith Wigglesworth ever spoke on this earth. Some weeks previously, he had visited the house of a very sick woman in Wakefield. For years she had suffered the intense ravages of a cancerous growth throughout her body, and had endured excruciating pain. From the natural viewpoint her case was hopeless. As he ministered the word to this dear woman, and prayed for her, she responded to his ministry. The power of God was mightily manifested, and she arose from her bed, and walked around the room with her hands uplifted. It surely appeared as though God had healed her. Our great heart had been greatly blessed in his own spirit when praying for the sister, and when he returned to Bradford his daughter wrote, The house was filled with the presence and fragrance of God. The worship was lovely. He prayed, O Lord, thou knowest that we have never turned from thy word for a moment. Thy word has always been sufficient. Thou knowest, Lord, we have never doubted thy word. Thou art the healer, the deliverer, and all we need. It was a lovely, simple, childlike prayer, and it was heaven to see his countenance. Some little while after the above incident, he went to see this woman as pastor, Wilfred Richardson, who had been hurried to a hospital and had undergone what was thought to be an absolutely necessary operation. Tears of sympathy and love blended as these two elderly men affectionately embraced each other. What will they say? exclaimed the sick man. What can I tell my people? I who have preached divine healing for over 30 years am now in the hospital and have submitted to an operation. Despite the loving counsel and comfort of his friend, this pastor continued to reproach himself, saying, I can never forgive myself, never. Possibly this attitude of heart contributed to his death, which took place about 10 weeks later. The winter months had been exceptionally severe, much snow had fallen, and so Smith Wigglesworth, who was now eighty-seven years of age, was kept indoors a good deal. However, when he heard of the death of this dear friend, he said, I must attend his funeral. He dressed in a warm suit, and remarked how wonderfully well he felt. Some friends took him to Wakefield, in their car, and they said they had never seen him so jubilant. As they journeyed the thirteen miles, he pointed out to them the various churches, in which he and his wife had conducted revival services, and told of incidents connected with these meetings. James Salder had been asked to conduct the funeral service, and he arrived at the church building ahead of his father-in-law. When Wigglesworth came, he invited him into the vestry, where a small fire of coal was burning. As he entered the door, he met Mr. Hibbert, the father of the sick woman for whom he had prayed for deliverance from cancer. It was to this dear man of God, that the question was addressed, well. And how is she? He awaited the reply with an eagerness almost bordering on impatience. He expected to hear that she was completely delivered, but the answer came in a hesitant manner, she is a little better, a bit easier, her pains have not been quite so bad during the past few days. This was not the victorious report he had expected, and the anguish of his bent up disappointment found expression, in a body convulsing sigh, that came from the depth of his being, it was that sigh of compassion that broke the heart of Smith Wigglesworth. His chin fell on his chest. Without any pain whatever he went to be with the Lord he loved so well, and whom he had served so faithfully from his childhood days. He had written to us a few weeks previously about Enoch's walking with God, and walking right into the glory. He was constantly praying that he might indeed be an Enoch, and he was. His sudden homegoing was very much like a translation. He was not, for God took him. Some 15 years previously, according to a friend, he had said at a convention, I am asking the Lord for 15 more years of life and service. The Lord gave him those 15 years, even down to the very week. During those years he visited most of the countries in Europe, besides the United States and South Africa, and he had the joy of seeing the word confirmed with signs following to the glory of God. Sometimes when he was past his fourscore years it would be said to him, I wonder who will receive your mantle. He would reply, I am not done with it yet. But as he would tell his audiences all over the world, God has everything for you, he does not want you to come behind in any gift. The one thing he calls upon you to do is to believe him. He would say, I can get more out of God by believing him for one minute than by shouting at him all night. If you will open your heart to God's grace, God will come in and place in you definite faith. All round the world has faith was expressed in the simple song, Only believe, only believe, all things are possible, only believe. Chapter 16 Yet speaking we close this volume with one of Smith Wigglesworth's sermons on the theme of faith. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. By faith Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Hebrews 11. There is only one way to all the treasures of God, and that is the way of faith. All things are possible, the fulfilling of all promises to him that believeth. When the word came to Zacharias he was filled with unbelief until the angel said, Thou shalt be dumb. Because thou believest not my words. Luke 1.20. Mary said, Be it unto me according to thy word. Luke 1.38. And the Lord was pleased that she believed that there would be a performance. When we believe what God has said, there shall be a performance. There were people praying all night that Peter might come out of prison. But there seemed to be one thing missing despite all their praying, and that was faith. Rhoda had more faith than all the rest of them. When the knock came at the door, she ran to it for she was expecting an answer to her prayers, and the moment she heard Peter's voice, she ran back, and announced to them that Peter was standing at the door. And all the people said, you are mad. It isn't so. That was not faith. When she insisted that he was there, they said, well, perhaps God has sent his angel. But Rhoda insisted, it is Peter. And Peter continued knocking. And they went out and found it, so what Rhoda had believed had become a glorious fact. Beloved, we may do much praying, and groaning, but we do not receive from God, because of that, we receive, because we believe. But when a man labors in prayer, he groans, and travails, because his tremendous sin is weighing him down, and he becomes broken in the presence of God, and when properly melted he comes into perfect harmony with the divine plan of God, and then God can work in that clay. He could not before. Prayer changes hearts, but it never changes God. He is the same yesterday, and today, and forever full of love, full of compassion, full of mercy, full of grace, and ready to bestow this, and communicate that to us, as we come in faith to Him. Believe, that when you come into the presence of God you can have all you came for. You can take it away, and you can use it, for all the power of God is at your disposal in response to your faith. The price for all was paid by the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary, We read in Hebrews 2 5, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, before his translation he had this testimony, that he pleased God, we are called to walk together with God, through the Spirit. It is delightful to know, that we can talk with God, and hold communion with Him. Through this wonderful baptism in the Spirit which the Lord gives us, He enables us to talk to Himself, in a language, that the Spirit has given, a language which no man understands, but which He understands, a language of love. Oh, how wonderful it is to speak to Him, in the Spirit, to let the Spirit lift, and lift, and lift us, until He takes us into the very presence of God. I pray that God by His Spirit may move all of us so that we walk with God, even as Enoch walked with Him. But beloved, it is a walk by faith, and not by sight, a walk of believing the Word of God. I want to show you the difference between our faith, and the faith of Jesus Christ. Our faith is limited, and comes to an end. Most people have experienced coming to the place where they have said, Lord, I can go no further. I have gone so far, and I cannot go on. But God can help us, and take us beyond this. I remember one night, being in the north of England. I was taken into a house, where there was a young woman lying on her bed, a very helpless case. Her reason was gone, and many things were manifested that were absolutely satanic. She was a beautiful young woman. Her husband was quite a young man. He came in with a baby in his arms, leaned over and kissed his wife. The moment he did so she threw herself over on the other side of the bed, just as a lunatic would do, with no consciousness of the presence of her husband. It was heartbreaking. The husband took the baby and pressed the baby's lips to the mother. Again there was a wild frenzy. I said to the sister who was attending her, Have you anybody to help? She answered, We have done everything we could. I said, Have you no spiritual help? Her husband stormed and said, Spiritual help. Do you think we believe in God, after we have had seven weeks of no sleep, and this maniac condition? If you think we believe in God, you are mistaken. You have come to the wrong house. There was a young woman about 18 who grinned at me as she passed out of the door, as much as to say, You cannot do anything. But this brought me to a place of compassion for this poor young woman. And then with what faith I had I began to penetrate the heavens. I was soon out on the heights, and I tell you I never saw a man get anything from God, who prayed on the earth level. If you get anything from God you will have to pray right into heaven, for all you want is there. If you are living an earthly life, all taken up with sensual things, and expect things from heaven, they will never come. God wants us to be a heavenly people, seated with him, in the heavenlies, and laying hold of all the things in heaven, that are at our disposal. I saw there, in the presence of that demented girl, limitations to my faith, but as I prayed there came another faith into my heart that could not be denied, a faith that grasped the promises, a faith that believed God's word. I came from the presence of the glory back to earth. I was not the same man. I confronted the same conditions I had seen before, but in the name of the Lord Jesus, With a faith that could shake hell, and move anything else, I cried to the demon power, that was making this young woman a maniac, come, out of her, in the name of Jesus. She rolled over and fell asleep, and awakened in 14 hours, perfectly sane, and perfectly whole. Enoch conversed with God. I want to live in constant conversation with God. I am so grateful that from my youth up, God has given me a relish for the Bible. I find the Bible food for my soul. It is strength to the believer. It builds up our character in God. And as we receive with meekness the Word of God, we are being changed by the Spirit from glory to glory. And by this book comes faith, for faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. I believe that all our failures come because of an imperfect understanding of God's Word. I see that it is impossible to please God on any other line, but by faith and everything that is not of faith is sin. You say, how can I obtain this faith? You see the secret in Hebrews 12 2, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author of faith. Oh, the might of our Christ who created the universe, and upholds it all by the might of his power. He who made this vast universe will make us a new creation. He spoke the word and the stars came into being, can he not speak the word, that will produce a mighty faith in us? Ah, this one who is the author and finisher of our faith comes, and dwells within us, quickens us by his spirit, and molds us by his will. And he who has begun a good work within us will complete it, and perfect it, for he not only is the author, but the finisher, and perfecter of our faith. The word of God is living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12. How the word of God severs the soul, and the spirit the soul which has a lot of carnality, a lot of selfishness, in it, a lot of evil in it. Thank God, the Lord can sever from us all that is earthly and sensual, and make us a spiritual people. He can bring all our selfishness to the place of death, and bring the life of Jesus into our being to take the place of that earthly and sensual thing that is destroyed by the living word. The living word pierces right to the very marrow. When I was in Australia, so many people came to me with double curvature of the spine, but the word of the Lord came right down to the very marrow of their spines, and instantly they were healed and made straight, as I laid hands on them in the name of Jesus. The divine Son of God, the living word, through his power, moved upon those curvatures of the spine, and straightened them out. Oh, thank God for the mighty power of the word. God has come to lead us out of ourselves into himself, and to take us from the ordinary into the extraordinary from the human into the divine, and make us after the image of His Son. Oh, what a Savior! It is written, Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that, when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3 2 But even now, the Lord wants to transform us from glory to glory, by the Spirit of the living God. Have faith in God, have faith in the Son, have faith in the Holy Spirit, and the triune God will work in you working in you to will, and to do all the good pleasure of his will.